Welcome to The Sunny Side, the podcast that makes solar energy relatable, accessible, and attainable. Join us as we journey behind the scenes with women taking amazing strides in all parts of the solar industry. I'm your host, Sharon Lee, and thank you for joining us today. All right, welcome back to the sunny side. So we are going to start things off talking a little bit from Sharon's corner. And naturally, as always, travel baseball seems to be my life outside of solar. And so that is exactly what we did all weekend. So we had to do a little bit of family dividing and conquering where I went with my older kiddo and my husband went with my younger and we were all over Metro Atlanta this weekend. So I don't even know what today is, uh, but It was fun. My younger son was supposed to have an off weekend, but he had a coach call him and he played as a pickup player in a tournament. And turns out this ended up being a reunion of a former all-star rec league team. So it was fun for the parents. It was fun for the kids. They had so much momentum and excitement. They ended up going to the championship game. They lost the championship, but we really did not care. We'd been there for so long and it was so much fun. So his season's about to end and then we can just focus on one kid for baseball and you think you get a break and then football season starts. So, you know, whatever, but I'm kind of a broken record on this sports related stuff, but Hey, that's kind of my life. But let's dive into the sunny side and welcome Amanda Bybee. She is the CEO of Amicus O&M. So thank you for joining us today. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. So let's talk a little bit about your background. I'm always fascinated to find out how people wound up in the solar industry. And when I was looking at your bio, you went from a English-French major at the University of Texas, Austin, to solar. So tell me how that ride went. (laughs) Yes. Well, when I graduated college, I knew that I wanted to do impactful work. And I thought about if I was going to line up all the problems in the world like a domino chain, what are the dominoes at the front of the line that affect everything else? And my answer for myself at the time was education and energy underlie a lot of the problems that we see in the world today. And I really wanted to make an impact in my early 20s. I didn't want to have to wait 20 years of working my way up through, you know, being a teacher and getting into administration, because really what I wanted to work on was like systems. And I knew that that was just going to be a longer path. Whereas on the energy side, it felt like I could make a difference faster. So I got my first job at a nonprofit organization in Austin called Public Citizen. It is a national nonprofit with a big presence in Washington, D.C. It's really regarded as a consumer advocacy group. But in Texas, we had a little satellite office with just four paid staffers and like eight interns. (laughs) And we focused on energy and the environment. And so that gave me my entry point to the renewable energy industry, mostly from a policy perspective, because we were advocating for more friendly renewable energy policies in the city of Austin and the state of Texas. And it was a really fun and exciting time. We launched the Solar Austin campaign and Austin Energy started the first solar rebate program in the state of Texas in 2004. So I got to be a big part of that. And San Antonio came quickly thereafter, their much larger utility. But between the two of them, they've really made a dent in getting Texas's solar industry started. So that was pretty fun. 
And it's amazing how, you know, most people think of solar panels when they think of solar energy. And it's amazing at how much policy plays into all of that. I mean, a huge portion of it. And so then therefore, suddenly this whole industry opens up because policy changes. So exactly. Yeah. And still to this day, you know, here we are almost 20 years later, and we're still very policy driven industry. But really, when you take a step back and look at it, all of energy is. You know, that's true for oil and gas as well. They're still heavily affected by the policies that come down. So I don't think we're getting out of the policy game anytime soon. Right. Unfortunately, but that's right. So you're a mom of two and you live in Colorado now, not Texas. So tell me a little bit about your background there. Yeah. So we moved to Colorado in 2005, which was after the state had passed Amendment 37, which set up the state's first renewable energy goals but before the rulemaking was finished. So I had been interviewing everybody I knew from Texas that had contacts in Colorado. I said, where do I need to start? I had some contacts. I made phone calls and did you know informational interviews. But then there was a hearing at the Public Utilities Commission. And so I rode my bicycle to the PUC building in August of 2005, parked my bike, pulled my blazer out of my backpack and went in looking like a professional, you know, it was a pretty influential rulemaking hearing. And I was like, oh, well, all the solar companies will be there. And in fact, they were not very well represented. But one of the very earnest, passionate speakers there was a gentleman named Blake Jones. And I went and introduced myself to him afterwards. And he was the co-founder of Namaste Solar. And so we started talking and I officially joined Namaste Solar in January of 06. And I was like the fifth full-time person on payroll. So it was just this little baby startup at the time, and we were still waiting for the rebate programs to actually kick off here in Colorado, but they took a chance and hired me, and I went on to be there for over 11 years. Wow. And they're EPC, so tell me what you did for them. Oh, golly. What did I not do for them over (laughs) the course of time? So Namaste Solar is a really cool company. It is an employee-owned cooperative, in fact. This will become a theme as I talk. It's also a certified B Corp, and it's just a company that really believes in walking its talk. So really pays a lot of attention to how it does what it does in the solar industry. When I started out, you know, when you're a company of five or 10 people, you're doing everything. So I was bookkeeping and policy and inside sales and receiving and inventory and, you know, everything but going out in the field, basically. And then I went into actual sales and I worked quite a bit with builders to try to integrate solar into new home construction because we felt like that was going to be a more impactful way to leverage relationships instead of the one-off retrofit sales. And then somewhere along the way, we made me vice president and people would say, vice president of what? And I would say, of everything. Hello, (laughs) VP of PV. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, But it was really a utility player so that I, you know, returning to that utility kind of role so that I could support any division that needed it. Did a lot of work in HR at the time, supported marketing and commercial sales at various points. But then the really fun thing was I got to help out with some certain special projects. So Namaste Solar was, in many ways, the generator, the brain power behind Amicus Solar Cooperative, which is a purchasing cooperative that we founded in 2011. It today has 70 member companies throughout the United States that aggregate purchases of all of the major solar equipment so that they can get better volume-based pricing. Okay. Out of Amicus Solar then came an effort to start Clean Energy Credit Union. And I got to be the project manager of this whole effort with the National Credit Union Administration to start a new federally chartered 
credit union to provide financing for solar and all kinds of clean energy products and services. So clean energy credit union is a going concern today. I am still a volunteer with it. Something I'm really proud of. They've got over 6,000 members now throughout the United States, and they've originated over $100 million in loans for all kinds of clean energy products and services. So really, really cool growth. We got the charter for that in 2017, and it opened for business in 2018. So all that growth has happened. Wow. In just a few short years. And then right around the time that we hired the first CEO for Clean Energy Credit Union, we also submitted a grant application to the Department of Energy's Sunshot Initiative to start Amicus Operations and Maintenance Cooperative. And we partnered with a couple of other member companies from Amicus Solar and Amicus Solar itself. And when we were submitting the paperwork, they said, hey, Amanda, can we put you down as the principal investigator on this thing? And I said, what does that mean? And they were like, well, yeah, but we'll figure it out. That's right. And Device that inadvertently commissioned right. <laughs> me to be the project manager of that grant. Nice. And then subsequently, I moved over to run it full time. So let's back up for one second and just start back with what exactly is a cooperative approach? Maybe let's lay that out and then talk about how that applies to O&M. Yeah. So cooperatives are for-profit corporations, which is a common misconception. A lot of people think they're nonprofits. (laughs) And while there are days where it feels like I'm running a nonprofit, it is technically for-profit. But what is intrinsic to a cooperative's design is that its governance is inherently democratic. Because in a cooperative, whatever your membership base may be, if it's employee-owned, your membership is your employees. If you're a purchasing cooperative, it may be the companies that are buying through you. Whatever it is, each of your members owns one share in the cooperative. And so when it comes to any matter of governance, that entitles them to one vote. And it's this fundamentally egalitarian democratic governance structure that is the hallmark of a cooperative. And this was really appealing to us at Namaste Solar when we had always been an employee-owned company, but we actually converted to being an employee-owned cooperative in 2011 because that would align our governance structure with our operating structure. Because we were always operating on a one-person, one-vote paradigm within the company. But the official like shareholder rights when we started out were one share equals one vote. And any individual could own up to 10,000 shares. Uh-huh. And so what we found was that that created this inequality of shareholder concentration mm-hmm. relative to the way that we were running the business. And so we wanted to bring those two things into better alignment. And the cooperative structure did that just very elegantly. And several things we loved about that, in addition to the elegance of it, is also the idea of everybody's voice matters. And so, you know, an installer had one share, the CEO had one share. And it was a real way to levelize that playing field Mm -hmm. in a way that we embraced. And I know that that's not going to be the right situation for every company, but that fit us very well. In the context of a purchasing cooperative or what we kind of call ourselves more like a shared services cooperative, each of the member companies in Amicus Solar or Amicus O&M own one share in the cooperative. And that's mostly exercised when we vote on our boards of directors. But the other thing that comes with that share is shared risk and reward. So when a cooperative is profitable, it's going to distribute that profit to its member companies. And when a cooperative is unprofitable, it could choose to share that loss with the member companies. And there's, you know, financial mechanisms to do that. But that's an aspect of the cooperative is that it's a really a shared ownership experience. And depending on how you choose to exercise that on a day-to-day basis, that shared risk and reward 
can really include a tremendous education in business ownership. And for an employee-owned cooperative, it was also a way to help our employees start to build wealth. In addition to their salaries, they have an investment, and that investment yields dividends. You know, at least at Namaste Solar and in many of the other employee-owned cooperatives that I am aware of, they accompany that ownership with quite a lot of education that the average worker might not get. You know, how to read financial statements. What does it mean to have this investment that yields dividends or to share losses? And, you know, we used to joke that we got the Namaste MBA after so many years of being at the company because of all the financial literacy that we included as a part of just employment. Well, that's a good segue in when we were talking that you had just gotten off the phone with a prospective member. So that also goes right into the attributes of members that you're looking for. So let's talk about what you're looking for in members and how that works out. So Amicus O&M Cooperative, as I described it, is kind of a shared services cooperative. And when we were formed in 2016 with the help of that DOE grant, the intent behind it was really to bring more standardization and consistency to the O&M marketplace. For better or worse, O&M has always kind of been an afterthought in our industry. And we've been working really hard the last five, six years to change that and help O&M be more of a top of mind issue for developers and asset owners. Because you think about it, you know, we've spent all this time as an industry focusing on the development cycle, two, three years, you know, to find the land, back out the site and the system and all that, get your off takers lined up. But O&M is going to be happening for 25 plus years on that site. And if you expect your return on investment to meet the numbers that were in that initial spreadsheet during that development cycle, you have to pay attention to the maintenance of this asset. So been banging this drum, trying to make sure people see it. But the other fact of the matter is that in 2016, at least, it was a wild west. (laughs) There was no consistency in terms of scopes of work, Mm -hmm. frequencies, pricing. It was just all over the place. So we've been also working within the membership to ensure that our technicians are trained to a certain standard, to ensure that they all carry the right safety credentials, to ensure that we're approaching the work in a way that is safe and efficient and profitable, because this is an incredible form of diversification for a lot of our companies. We have a handful of companies that are O&M only shops, but the majority of them also perform EPC services, and they look at their service and O&M departments as an additional revenue stream to what their EPC is doing. And so within the cooperative, we accomplish our goals of standardization through several different means. And I talk about these kind of three big buckets of like, what is the value proposition of joining the O&M cooperative? The first is tools and templates that we provide that give a service and O&M department a whole framework for how to operate. It's the legal contract. It's the estimating tool. It's a software that allows the technicians to go out in the field, follow the app, follow the checklist, and then generate a report. So that if everybody's using the same tools, by nature, you're reinforcing some amount of standardization. We also, in the second bucket, do quite a lot of knowledge sharing. And so we have monthly meetings where you can interact with your counterpart at companies all over the country. Hey, I'm dealing with X problem. How have y'all handled this? Everybody's dealing with the same problems. This isn't terribly proprietary to go out there and fix these things, but there's always something new. There's always a new software to explore together or a new problem that we run into. And so we share notes and we compare how we've addressed each problem. Within that vein, and maybe this kind of straddles the standardization and the knowledge sharing, we're also building a training program for our O&M technicians. Because the more you trained the same types of standards and the same practices, the more, again, that's going to reinforce the standardization 
but also the knowledge sharing. And this was born out of a years-long technician shortage, because the fact of the matter is we do not have enough experienced and trained technicians to take care of the solar that's currently installed, much less what we plan to install over the next 10 years to try to mitigate the climate crisis. Exactly. So we got to grow them. We got to grow these technicians. And that's really a huge emphasis and priority for the cooperative right now. But then the last thing that we do on each other's behalf is we try to help each other grow. And so when I'm out there talking to clients, you know, if they call me up and say, hey, do you know somebody in Southern California? I'll say, as a matter of fact, I do. And I make introductions. So we call it business development, but really I'm just a matchmaker. So (laughs) the cooperative doesn't hold O&M contracts. We don't actually dispatch technicians ourselves. I introduce clients to the member companies who are equipped and resourced to do that effectively. And you also have a geographic scope as far as what you're looking for in members, right? Yes. So when we talk to new member companies, we look at it in terms of like three or four big important pieces. One is geographic coverage. Optimally, we want the cooperative to cover all 50 states and outlying territories and everything. Right now, we do have some holes on our map. So we're looking for member companies that can come in and help fill in those holes. But we also pay attention to overlap. And this is actually one of the trickier aspects of adding new members to the cooperative is paying attention to market saturation. We do not discourage competition within the cooperative, and we take great pains to ensure that we're always on the right side of antitrust and anti-cooperative competitive law. But it's true that if there are too many companies operating in the same area, they get a little bit uncomfortable. Sure. So we do try to manage that in a responsible and respectful way. A little bit of overlap is not such a bad thing in my book because it gives you opportunities, backup. You can always work together on projects if you get some kind of a big special project that requires more than you can comfortably staff. Mm -hmm. So some overlap is okay, but we don't want too much. But then the other really big important thing is that within that knowledge sharing piece, there has to be a lot of trust in the room because you're not going to be willing to share your blunder or your mistake if there's someone in the room that you don't feel will hold that confidence. And so looking for companies that are values aligned with the things that we cherish in the cooperative, and in particular, that piece of holding the confidence for each other, absolutely knowing that nobody on that call is going to repeat what you said in a derogatory fashion Mm -hmm. to your potential customer to try to win business away from you. That kind of values alignment and values add to our cooperative is really important. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, you know, to the degree that we are possibly doing work on each other's behalf, you know, it, this can be like a network of subcontractors. If you happen to have a national portfolio that you can't service all by yourself, you want to make sure that the companies that we bring in are high quality workmanship and who will adhere to the safety standards that we're setting out and who will emphasize safety and who will go out there and really be efficient at the work, not just fumbling around and making a lot of mistakes that they expect you to pay for. So Quality workmanship is, of course, a really important part of it. Okay. Well, you know, and this podcast is about women in solar. So tell me what a female style of leadership means to you. Yeah. So one of the things that I feel like we have seen, especially over the last two years, you know, coming through the pandemic, is there's really been a call for a new kind of leadership. We cannot function as leaders in our company pretending like there's some bubble that takes your employees out of the real world. And the pandemic and a lot of the social unrest we've seen in the last few years, these are having real impacts on all of us, 
but certainly on all of our employees. And when you are responsible for running a business that is situated in the historical context of these life-altering events, I really feel like it's brought to the forefront a call for a new kind of leadership, which I would describe as a more compassionate kind of leadership. You know, I think that in some circles, this has historically been called a feminine style of leadership. But I hesitate to brand it with that because I really want to see this coming from all leaders of every gender, Mm -hmm. not just from women, you know, where we take into account mental health. We take into account what is your social family situation? Do you have children or old folks in your life that you need to go take care of? Are you sick? Do you need to quarantine? Do you need to be with somebody else that is sick and quarantining? Creating space and forgiveness and grace for each other in these moments is really the kind of leadership that I think is called for in this time. And I think that if we develop these new skills as leaders, if we can say, I see you as a whole person dealing with a whole lot of things that are not your day job, maybe we build that into our expectations. Maybe we build that into our officing policies. You know, I think everybody's gotten a whole lot more comfortable with remote work than we ever were. For sure. Prior to the pandemic. But can we take some of those lessons and weave them into the way that we think about the future of work? I've heard a lot of really eloquent thought leaders say, we are at a once in a lifetime inflection point for thinking about what our work lives and our personal lives and how they interact. This is a tremendous opportunity to really broaden the way that we think and treat each other. Right. I think that we've always talked about balance, you know, in any, whether what you're doing financially, what you're doing, you know, in any part of your life, but you're right, we're finally seeing it put into real life action. Have you already seen benefits from this style of leadership in your own world? Well, within the cooperative, I run a very lean shop. So it's just me in the cooperative. So I'll say that all of those we's that I threw around were pretty like me, myself, and I kind of the royal we's. But I've certainly seen this surface with the member companies because while the staff of the cooperative itself is only one, I interact with 27 active member companies all the time. And they have staffs ranging from 10 up to 350. And this has very much been on their minds. And we've spent a lot of time in that spirit of sharing information and how have you handled the pandemic crises? Like there have been biweekly calls with the principals of these member companies on the Amica Solar side for the last two years. So there's been a lot of talk about this and how we accommodate it, how we keep our businesses running, how we still find ways to stay profitable because it is a factor that all these quarantine periods and all these making space for your employees to deal with both mental trauma associated with all this stuff, as well as the physical aspects of it, these all add up to a lot of new business challenges that we hadn't faced in the same exact way before. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, when we met, we were on a Zoom call that was the Women in Solar Energy. I had just started Velo, and I think you privately chatted me, oh my gosh, you're at Velo, and you do some folks here and, and all of that. But one of the questions they threw out is, you know, what did you learn from, you know, when everything was shut down and and all of that? I mean, I had been working remotely long before COVID. So that was not a transition for me, but having two kids at home at young ages and trying to, I think I shared with our group that I learned that I could flip grilled cheese and do a conference call at the same 
time. But one thing that you and I were talking about previously when we were on the phone was that this brings about that balance in diversity and inclusion and how a business takes all of that into account. And I think that we're really capitalizing on that now. You know, it's interesting. I've read some really poignant articles in the last few months about, you know, what is the future of work? You know, because I think alongside the pandemic, we have also seen this huge social call for more racial equity and for, in the corporate world, diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. And looking at the intersection of these two topics, you know, very specifically, for example, remote work and promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion, there are some conundrums within that, that I think companies are facing right now, which is that women and people of color tend to prefer working from home because in many cases it allows them to integrate their lives and flip that grilled cheese while being on a conference call in ways that are really helpful. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a detraction for my productivity to go throw a load of laundry in the washing machine and then come back down to my meeting, but it enables me to not have to do that load of laundry on the weekends, which I really value, right? Sure. However, studies also show that managers tend to perceive greater productivity from workers that come into the office. And when you're working from home, you do not tend to establish the same type of sticky emotional bonds with your coworkers. You don't have the opportunities for FaceTime with your manager as much. And so it can result in possibly this disconnect of like, you've got these great workers working from home, but you don't see them as much. And so you don't maybe have as much of a sense of their work. And if management tends to promote those who are in the office, and those tend to be our white male counterparts, you're going to end up with this sort of backward cycle. And so I think it's something for companies to really put some careful thought into. And what it's really also forced us to do is put a fine point on what is an expectation of a worker, right? And if you can meet your expectations working from home, or by coming into the office, you know, a couple of days a week, then there shouldn't be a penalty for that. Right? right. But then the other thing that I'll say is there's also this equity piece of, ha- of like, there are a lot of workers in the solar industry who can't work from home. Mm-hmm. You can't install solar or fix solar right. from a computer. So I think that there's a lot of aspects of equity that are surfacing right now. And it's not just around like gender lines or racial lines, but it's also about types of work that we're doing and, How do we honor those? You know, it's an interesting moment for us, though, to try to weave all of this into one future of a workplace and still ensure that we're increasing the diversity, equity and inclusion of our companies. Well, that might be a good segue into you're making this so easy for me (laughs) to segue into mentorship, because I think that how you're working with your new hires and all of that and placing these values and shaping either new workers or your new workplace or whatever, it all plays together. Yeah, I think mentorship is a cool answer to some of these questions, because when you have a structured mentorship program, you can hit several of these notes, right? One is you're helping ensure the success of a new employee. Two, you're potentially increasing their visibility to management. Like if you're pairing managers with newer employees or more entry-level folks or up-and-coming folks, you're increasing their visibility, which is going to help them when it comes time for those next promotions and raises. But it also creates more sticky bonds. And I think in the labor market we're facing right now, where you know people are jumping ship in record numbers, looking for new advancement opportunities or more pay or you know more benefits in general, what keeps a person in many cases is the relationship that they form with their coworkers. 
And so through mentorship, you can create more of a bond, which maybe will result in a little bit higher retention rate. Or, you know, you'll have at a minimum an opportunity to understand where a person wants to go and how you can help them achieve that within your organization. But I also really like mentorship programs. You know, we had set one up at Namaste Solar back in my days there where we very intentionally required the mentor and mentee to be from different teams because it created another degree of cross-pollinization that frankly benefited the mentors as much as it did the mentees. Right. So I was such an early joiner at the company and I was in a desk-based role. So my mentees were typically field folks. I learned so much from them. And, you know, having been at the company as long as I had by the time we built the mentorship program, I had forgotten what it felt like to be new Ah. at the company. And so it gave me so much insight to just ask them questions and hear from them. And I don't even love the term mentorship in some ways because it implies in some sense like a hierarchical relationship. Mm -hmm. Like the mentor is supposed to know everything and the mentee is just gobbling it up. But in my experience, it's much more of a level playing field in a two-way street because I learn a ton even when I'm being called the mentor. And what's also funny is that in a lot of the companies I've seen try to start mentorship programs, most people won't raise their hands and say, I should be a mentor. Everybody tends to cast themselves in the role of mentees. And so when you kind of approach it from more of a peer level or a peer structure, it tends to make it more comfortable for people to enter into that relationship and say, let's just carve out special time where you and I get together and talk. And so I kind of prefer language that has less of a hierarchical note to it for that reason. But I love the cross-teaming as well, because you generally think of butting heads with, you know, you're behind the desk and you're pushing deadline, deadline and all that. And that person's out in the field and they're dealing with rain or they're dealing with whatever the challenge might be, (laughs) right? And then it really lets you see it from their perspective and kind of live it. Well, and I mean, every company in our space deals with this question of the field office divide. And so anything we can do to build empathy across that chasm and kind of shrink its distance between the walls a little bit, I think that tends to benefit our cultures as a whole. And, you know, spending time with each other, the office person going out in the field or the field person coming into the office for a period of time, I think it does create a lot greater sense of what it is to walk in each other's shoes for that mile. Right. So, Yeah. It accomplishes a lot of really positive things to have mentorship that's thoughtfully structured. Now, they can also go badly if you don't put enough time and energy and thought into how you support that program. Mm -hmm. But when done well, I think it can be a really strong addition to a company's culture. Right. And I think that you're exactly right that that adds to retention. And I think that people put such a low value on spending that extra time doing that. But in the end, it is so beneficial for the company. So it makes perfect sense. Well, you know, I think a lot of us get caught up in the day to day, like the crush and the sweep of the volume of business that we're trying to accomplish. But, you know, this is also a part of our maturing as an industry as a whole. You got to start thinking about succession planning at some point. And there's no better way to do that than putting in place programs like a mentorship program. And if you're a company that is going to care about diversity, equity, inclusion, and I hope we all are, then you need to look for specific ways to ensure that you are elevating people who want to be elevated and giving them those pathways up through your company. Because I think a lot of us are very good at paying attention to diversity, equity, inclusion, particularly in entry-level jobs, but it really needs to trickle out into every level of our company. And so I think that the most successful companies have a strong promotion policy where they first try to hire up from within and then 
where needed, they may supplement from external sources with specific skill sets. But the more you can raise people up, the more you give them that picture of how I can succeed at this company for a long time, I think the better off you're going to be in any kind of succession when the founders and leaders choose to step down. I look at the solar industry as a whole, and I've been in it, I'll call it 20 years next year, but that's still really quite young as an industry. And so we're learning these lessons all over again that other industries have learned. And that's a part of our maturation and our professionalizing. And and it's a good thing. And there's a lot we can learn from other industries that have been down this road before. It's my hope that we're starting to pay attention to what we can learn from our brethren around the world. Well, and and brethren and sisterin. <laughs> right. Well, so let's shift gears a little bit. When we talked before, we talked about so many different topics, but one of those topics was technology. So tell me about a technology that you see as being very impactful to our overall discussion of adopting more, say, climate-friendly practices. The long Well, you know, <laughs> I am really excited to see the rise of the electric pickup truck. And I've been thinking a lot about this technology because what we're seeing right now is A, electric vehicle sales are on the rise. And this is a really important part of transforming a highly polluting aspect of our industry infrastructure. It's good for solar because we're electrifying everything and solar PV does that. So I see it as a a win for our industry to see this advent of electrification. But it's also obviously a big win for the environment. And we've seen the EV adopters, right? The early adopters are always the ones that are like either techno geeks or enviro geeks or like they're kind of out there. Yeah. But electric pickup trucks are about as mainstream as you can get in American society. And when you think about this, if I own a contracting company and I have a fleet of pickup trucks out in the world, most of them aren't doing long haul driving every day. Most of them are working in a given service area. And so the ranges that are coming out on these pickup trucks is going to fit perfectly within my service area needs. And if I can do that without having to pay four or five, six dollar gallon gas, boy, that's starting to look pretty darn attractive. You know, so the economics of it are really exciting. But then the other piece of this, which Ford is way out ahead of with the way that they're marketing the lightning, is they are marketing it as a backup generator that you can use in your home. So that you could plug this into the grid, you know, at night and provide power back to the grid. You could use it during an outage. And I think it's going to transform the way that we contemplate these distributed battery resources, right? These distributed energy resources. And that is a fascinating case study in consumer behavior, probably, possibly going to inform utility policy and rate making. Where, you know, this is what solar has been. Solar has always been a disruptive technology to the utility industry. But I really see the advent of these electric pickup trucks as being another, like, quantum leap forward in consumer behavior driving policy. Now, we're a little early. I don't know that we've started to see utilities formulating the EV truck rate structure yet. Right. I think it's coming and I feel like it's going to be an aspect of our evolving society where we see the ability to make a purchase that I'm going to park in my garage that's going to affect my home energy usage. And that's just a very cool and fascinating aspect of this evolution that we see taking place in the energy market as a whole. That's right. We talked earlier about both of us enjoying fiction and how a fictional character can take you somewhere and you are seeing it. It's not dates in history and 
wars and battles and all of this cold stuff. I mean, you're living it with that person. Whereas you've got a person that might not think about resiliency and backup power and grid connection and all this. And then suddenly all of that's parked in their garage. And so they're living it. And so it really does bring in the masses to something that is like cold solar policy that only a small fraction of us are even thinking about. So mm-hmm. I think that's a fantastic connection. But I know we are starting to run a little bit short on time. So let's talk a little bit about other projects that you're actively involved in, some of your other goings on. Yeah, well, I am really passionate about this question of diversifying the solar industry. And you know, as a woman, advocating for more women in our industry has always been near and dear to my heart. And so, you know, if a young woman tries to friend me on LinkedIn, I almost always accept regardless of whatever the connection may be. And the mentorship and the peer mentorship and the advocacy has always been really strong. And a few years ago, my friend Tara and I were at SPI and we were feeling really frustrated as we looked at the lineup of all of the speakers on the different panels. And we were at the women's luncheon at SPI and they had us do these speed mentoring things at tables and they asked me to be a mentor. And I was like, well, I still don't think of myself as a mentor, but okay. And at the tables, we were like, what can we do? I'm sick of waiting for somebody else to like solve this problem. What can we actually do to address this kind of concentration we still see? And so we started a Google sheet and we started signing up women that were raising their hand to be speakers on panels, moderators, etc. And we got our Google sheet up to about 150 women who were great public speakers. And it kind of stalled out, which this is not uncommon. But we were like, still feeling frustrated. By this point, we're into the pandemic, we're seeing all these webinars, you know, umpteen bajillion webinars, right? But still, far too many of them are all white men. And, you know, I know that that is still the majority of our industry. And that's inevitable at some degree with the current demographics, but what's not inevitable is that there are so many women and so many people of color in our industry who are perfectly wonderful speakers who aren't given the platform. And so we were like, got all fired up again. We said, we got to do more. So we called RISE, the Women in Renewable Industries and Sustainable Energy. And we said, hey, Kristen and Elon, at one point we heard y'all were working on a speakers bureau. Where's that at? And they said, oh, we're working on it right now. And we said, well, we've got you know, 150 names that we'd like to put on it. Can we just join forces and help you get this over the finish line? And they said, heck yeah. So we formed a committee and launched a speakers bureau through Rise that is up and running today. It's really easy to sign up. If you do a search for Rise Speakers Bureau, it'll take you straight to that page. And this is all really with the intention of diversifying the faces and the voices that are taking part in the public discourse at our conferences. So if you're a conference organizer, it's a tremendous resource. You can sort by area of expertise. You can sort by geography. You know, if I was a recruiter and I was really smart, I would also look at this kind of a resource to think about who has the right area of expertise in your geography. So I think it's possibly got a double purpose, but um, that's one thing that I do feel really strongly about. And the other one I'll mention is that, you know, I think that just like many activists in the space, like I started out advocating for people who look like me. right? For women. But I've also come to see like, it's really important for me to use my platforms to advocate for people who don't look like me and who, you know, come from all walks of life. Sure. And so there is an industry group that has formed in the last year called Renewables Forward. And it's all about bringing together the companies throughout the renewables industry who 
want to invest deeply in diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And we have hired our first executive director. She started in May. And so she is just off like a rocket. Her name is Chris Nichols. We're really excited to have her join the team. There are about 40 or so member companies of Renewables Forward so far and growing. And these are large companies to small. You know, I'm on the board of directors as a one-person show. And so is Bruce Ledesma from Next Tracker. You know, they're a far larger company and everything in between. Soul Systems had a lot to do with the formation of this, but it's a way to come together and again, find a pure network of companies in our industry that are facing challenges and looking at ways to solve them. And there's a lot of resources that are coming out of the volunteer groups, HR playbooks. We're getting a business mentorship program started to pair larger, more established companies with women and minority-owned businesses that are up and coming. And we're really looking at making sure that we're measuring our progress in meaningful ways. So Renewables Forward is open open to anybody who wants to join. I also happen to be the co-chair of the new membership committee. So I'm a good point of contact for that as well. Excellent. Excellent. Well, so in closing, so I understand congratulations are in order. So you've got some big news for a recent American Solar Energy Society Award, right? Yes. Thank you very much. Awards always make me feel a little awkward to tell you the truth because, you know, it's not why we do this work, but it also does feel really good that they honored actually what we termed the Clean Energy Cooperative Network, which includes Amicus Solar, the Clean Energy Credit Union, and Amicus O&M Cooperatives. All of them are cooperatives and all of them have really been out to try to support independent business in our industry. And we believe, despite the consolidation that we're starting to see, M&A activity and all that, small businesses are still the engine of our economy and they always will be. Mm -hmm. And so finding the right ways to bring them together and to strengthen their businesses through cooperation is something that we all feel really passionate about. And I have not done anything in my career by myself. And in particular, I've been very fortunate to be in league with the leaders of those other cooperatives, Stephen Irvin with Amicus Solar and Blake Jones of Clean Energy Credit Union. And we've done an awful lot of this together. So it felt really nice to have a recognition for the ecosystem that we've built in service and support of independent business. Well, that's fantastic. So congrats again. That's very well-deserved. And thank you again for joining us today on the sunny side. So tell us where people can find out more about Amicus O&M and how to get in touch with you. Sure. So Amicus O&M's website is Amicus, A-M-I-C-U-S-O-M as in operations and maintenance.com. And there you can see a map of our member companies, their coverage. If you click on a state, you can see which companies service that area. I'm on LinkedIn. Amanda Bybee is probably the easiest way to search me. I try to stay off of the other social medias, to be honest, but I do get over to LinkedIn somewhat regularly. And then you can always contact me through the website. Fantastic. All right. Well, thanks again. And we look forward to hearing more about everything that you're doing out there in the world. You're doing a lot of great work. Well, thanks, Sharon. I appreciate you having me and I appreciate the podcast. And I think it's a really awesome platform to hear from the women around our industry and to hear all the cool things that they're doing, but also the different way that they're doing it. Right. Well said. All right. Well, thanks again. Thanks for listening to the Sunny Side Podcast. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review. You can also email questions, suggestions, and compliments to Sharon at velosolar.com. The Sunny Side is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company and executive produced by Sharon Lee. 
Oh, 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 oh,